This is my prediction. You can mark my words. On uh, March 12th, 2018, I am betting on the International Monetary Fund issuing a, uh, they'll call it a blockchain-based SDR that is a basket of global currencies. Welcome back for another episode of the Post Money Plan Podcast. My name is Dallas Post, and I am your host. As you know, I believe empowerment comes through knowledge, so my purpose here is to inform, educate, and stimulate thought within personal finance, economics, and investing. You can find me at postmoneyplan.com or search the Post Money Plan in the iTunes podcast app or in Google Play. All right, so I wanted to be talking about tariffs in this episode because it's been in the news and it's a hot topic with Trump talking about tariffs and taxes on steel and all that stuff with China. So I wanted to get to the more theoretical side of whether or not tariffs make sense or don't make sense, the drawbacks to them, the benefits, these kind of things of why it's even an issue in the first place. So I brought my friend Tom Dickens on the show who is a bit of an autodidact economist who loves the Austrian school of economics side of the uh, perspective on things. Could you give a little bio on yourself since it's been a while? Okay, well, you kind of said it in the introduction. I'm big into the school of thought of free market Austrian economics. I'm really into libertarian politically and, and Austrian and the Austrian economic theory. I'm pretty into studying this stuff. Although I'm just like an amateur, I wouldn't say I'm an expert, but I, I definitely kind of have my finger on the pulse when it comes to that stuff. And I work in commercial insurance and I underwrite many like large commercial risks. So that gives even that gives me a very broad spectrum of business and commercial practices and how the economy looks like on a grand scale. And uh, yeah, I just like to talk about economics. Which is exactly why I wanted to hear your opinion from the Austrian side on the whole tariff situation. So give us a little rundown on tariffs and the idea behind them and whether or not they really have the impact that they're intended to have. Okay, so um, the idea of a tariff is essentially to regain some kind of competitive advantage in the international marketplace. If somebody is driving the price of a good down in another country, the idea is that you will tax them to sell that good to you so that you can bring income into your country through their business endeavors. It's used as a way of gaining revenue from a country, from trading with another country, so that all your capital doesn't outflow to that one country, you retain it. And then it's also used to gain a competitive advantage in that industry sector by allowing your country to manufacture at home instead of relying on that abroad. So there's multiple reasons why people put tariffs in play. You know, it can happen a lot in hostile situations where instead of necessarily doing sanctions, you would do a tariff to sort of, it's a way of like lightly shifting the scales. But there's uh, multiple reasons why people do them and they've been going on for a thousand years. But I guess we're there. It's a hot topic now because of what's uh, happening in the news. How about in terms of like the outcomes that come from them and then the positives and negatives? I personally, from my economic school of thought, I personally don't see a whole lot of positives that come from tariffs. I think all it really does is it drives the prices of goods up. 
yeah, you can gain revenue when you're taxing it. You get government revenue, but rarely does that government revenue ever go down to the consumer. That revenue is usually spent on wasted government exercises. But that now that's an opinion. That's not really like a, a textbook fact, but. I don't really see advantages in it from a consumer perspective. There's certainly advantages in it from a government perspective and a political perspective. If you're in some sort of, you know, like a lot of the times when countries are debating over how to control their currency, if a country's cutting their currency too low and getting too much of an advantage that way, then a way to counter that country's currency manipulation is through tariffs. So that's, you know, what, what people call a trade war, basically. Rarely does it benefit the consumer, but I guess it, it can benefit you in a geopolitical situation. Yeah, it's tricky because it's a multifaceted situation because you have the literal economic implications of having a tax or not tax or whatever. But then there's also kind of like the geopolitical and psychological dynamics, too, that you can create animosity between parties and then that can affect the psychology of participants, and then people might act differently than if there was or wasn't. So there's multiple levels going on that influence the situation. But what makes it really tricky for me to think about the topic of tariffs is because if you think from a whole global scale where each nation is just a piece of the whole global pie of humanity, then any kind of trade restriction is going to reduce the synergy and the efficiency of a truly free-flowing capital market. You know, like if China has an excess of steel or labor or whatever and is able to efficiently produce steel at a very low cost that is cheaper than any other country can produce it, then it would make sense for China to be the sole producer of steel and then export that and trade it to other countries in exchange for some other good or service that some other country is really good at producing. For example, like Saudi Arabia producing oil. So then China could trade its steel with Saudi Arabia for its oil or things like that. And then that would create a net positive for the two of them. So then a restriction there between the two would manipulate that market from naturally finding its balance and efficiency. And so on the whole, I see that as, as a loss if you're restricting any kind of free trade. But the tricky part comes in to me is when you're no longer thinking on a humanity level, but on a my country, your country level. Yeah, it's um, one good way to think about it is imagine if the United States started putting tariffs on their neighboring states like Wisconsin. You have this monopoly in cheese. So now we need to tax you every time you sell it. Like very quickly, the United States would become a much poorer country as a result, right? And often, like we don't think of states within a federal state as like on their own separate nations, but the international stage works the same way. And um, I agree with you; it's a net loss. I mean, you can do thought experiments about all this stuff. You know, a big reason people do it, right, is because the biggest argument is because they think they're losing jobs. Is what they always say when an industry is dominated in another country. But that's sort of, when you're talking about what makes an economy strong, there's 100 variables that go into like what makes an economy strong. And if you were to just weigh the variables on jobs, I think you would find many examples where that's not the case. I find that what makes an economy strong is that you have the smallest amount of labor input 
and you get the maximum amount of output as a result. And by putting tariffs on a neighboring country, now people are going to have to put in more input with whatever trade they have to get less output from the good that they're buying overseas. The only way that they would get the same amount of output is if somebody were to be creating it cheaper or the same price at home. And if that was already the case, you wouldn't need to have a tariff to begin with. So it is a net negative to the consumer and the consumer does suffer. And this whole thing about creating jobs is the most ridiculous argument because that doesn't necessarily mean there's a good economy. And I'll, uh, I'll use a couple of examples that show you that job creation is, is something that Obama boasted about and Trump is boasting about, but both of them are wrong in their version of job creation. Obama would create jobs through creating government jobs, which doesn't create any more output. That sucks resources from the private economy and drives prices up. And then Trump's boasting about job creation from things like these tariffs, which is also a net negative. The way it works is like, and I'm going to use this example from another podcast, actually, it's called Part of the Problem by Dave Smith, but he gives a really good example that highlights this. It's like you take a good like oxygen, right? It's free. It's like something that you get from the air. There's literally zero labor input and you get the output. So we have a good that's in the economy. It's oxygen, it's the air we breathe, and we, get, we all get it for free. So if some disaster were to occur where we couldn't get oxygen in the air from just naturally breathing anymore, and instead it required an insane amount of labor and an insane amount of product in order to produce the oxygen, does that mean that we now have a stronger economy because we've just created jobs because the, the oxygen in the air is harder to breathe? That's not a wealthier nation. That's not a wealthier economy. That's actually a drop in standard of living, right? But you've got extra jobs. I mean, there's a great example of when Milton Friedman went to do work in Chile and he was walking around and watching all the work. He was with the president watching the workers and they were all on the agricultural land digging with shovels, with um, hand shovels, hand spades. And he was asking, like, why don't you give these guys some bulldozers, some machinery to maximize their output? And the president's like, because this is a jobs program, right? <laughs> so it doesn't necessarily, like, the economic output is so much worse but you have so many more jobs. The creation of jobs doesn't mean you're bettering off people. You're just creating more labor input. That's so true. And you're getting less labor output, which actually decreases the standard of living for everyone. And you know, ask yourself like this like question, right? We're getting all these cheap goods from China, and it's supposed to be this terrible thing. But like, but if that's someone's argument, then wouldn't you argue that it would be a disaster if we just got everything for free from China? Like, if China just started sending stuff to the U.S. for free, wouldn't that tank the economy? Like, <laughs> it wouldn't. It wouldn't at all, because everybody would be getting free stuff and living a great standard of living. It's the same with lowering prices. It's just like you're getting that much closer to getting things for free. It's absolutely ridiculous to argue that creating jobs is going to create a better and more vibrant economy. It's just that this doesn't make sense. That's pretty much what happens every time regulation is put in place. The workaround is so much worse than what was in originally in place, right? Easiest is minimum wage. Minimum wage is like the most clear example of how this stuff doesn't work. And a large part of the reason why where you have to get steel from China is because of minimum wage laws. The frustrating thing, though, is that it's so hard to nail down on a like proof basis because there's like so many examples in history where you can point to results, but people can blame other circumstances or variables or whatever like people will look at venezuela 
and say, see, look, when they started the social programs, people got to be better off and things got better. But then as soon as it comes to the point where everything crashes, they're like, oh, no, no, no. Like, you can't look at that. It's a unique situation. Like, they were 100% dependent on oil and oil prices crashed. You can't look at that as, as like, an excuse why socialism doesn't work. Like, you can't do that. Yeah, I mean, people are going to have their biases in any argument. But I think the socialism one is, like, it's hard for me to find any more clear example of something that has failed and been tried over and over again. Like, point to me an example of a socialist country that's doing well. The biggest one that people always talk about is, like, Sweden and Denmark. But, like, most people who say that have never even lived in those countries, and those places are struggling. Like, in Denmark, people don't drive normal-sized cars. They drive, like, these, like, super small, smart cars. Because the price of gas is so astronomical that, like, people actually can't afford to drive larger cars. And, like, routinely, five or six people live in a single apartment there. There's all these, like, price gouging. Like, one of the things people on from those countries talk about online the most, they're like, I wish people would stop saying how great it is in our countries because they have no idea. Socialism is failing on a very large scale. Sweden, at one point, was the third largest economy in the world. Ever since they put socialism in place, that economy has just declined and gone downhill. Like, there's numerous examples of how socialism fails over and over and over again. And you don't even need to look at other countries. You just have to look at what is socialized in our current countries and what are we always talking about that's a problem, right? So, like, healthcare, education, infrastructure, like, all the stuff that is socialized is the stuff that we're always talking about as issues in elections. I mean, like, no one's talking about it's so hard to get a pair of shoes or like, <laughs> or like, man, it's like so difficult to get a cell phone. Like, that's the stuff that's not struggling. The stuff that's struggling is like, it's the same over and over and over again, all the socialized stuff. And that's always the stuff that's provided by the government. Man, I hate that I get so much cheap stuff on Amazon. <laughs> yeah. Like, what are you thinking about? Like... <laughs> You literally order something and it lands on your doorstep in three hours and you pay half price for it. Like, oh, these tyrants. It's like, what? <laughs> Meanwhile, you like line up three hours at the DMV to get your license and you're like, well, it's just something I have to do. Like, <laughs> people are like so quick. They're so quick to just like credit government and discredit the private sector. It's crazy, man. Like if the private sector did have to, the government gets away with, man, there would be people picketing the streets. <laughs> that's just something you have to do <laughs> yeah uh. well people seem to be fixated on this idea of equality as if that's like some utopian reality that should exist in the future it just is so ridiculous to think of well in Mao China everybody had to wear the same clothes you all wore the same stuff you're all equal in what you wore pretty much everybody got the same slice of bread at the end of the day so everybody was equal in that society but i don't know a whole lot of people that would want that kind of equality quality isn't necessarily a good thing inequality isn't necessarily a bad thing and that's the big differentiator like the difference between equality and equity there's the there's the equality of opportunity and the equality of outcome right equality of opportunity is a great thing right putting barriers into individuals to achieve goals based off of things they can't control is a problem. People should always be equal to pursue happiness and pursue their means. But to say that equality of output, that everybody deserves the same output, 
that's what leads to the biggest mass murders that you've ever seen in our human our history of humankind. So it's an impossible utopia. It's never going to happen. The closer everybody gets to equality, the more their standard of living has to go down. People aren't driven to invent. People aren't driven to build. People aren't driven to find ways to reduce prices so that they can sell more goods. And squashing that engine and trying to push people down and put them on a the level as everyone else is just it's just it's just a recipe for poverty. Well, I think a good way to frame the the situation is to really think about and define what is meant by economic prosperity, like kind of like the goal that we're shooting for. So what do you think of when you're thinking of economic prosperity for a nation? I think the most optimal point you would ever be is zero labor input with maximum output. If we were ever living in a world where no one had to work and you got all your needs taken care of, that's the strongest possible economy you could have. So the dreaded AI robots producing everything for us is not necessarily the doom and gloom that everyone predicts? Well, not at all. No, <laughs> that's, that's a separate topic I could talk about for a while. But I mean, like, look out throughout history. I mean, when has technology entering the scene ever caused a depression? Yeah, but when electricity was invented, the candle makers were calling for universal basic income. And when they didn't get it, the world ended. So there's so many, like, tra- <laughs> tractors, like, you know how many jobs were lost when tractors were introduced? Instead of 12 people in the fields, you only have one. I heard Paul Bunyan died. Yeah, it's, it doesn't work like that. And obviously, when you free up that labor, when that labor gets freed up, people go on to do other things, and they invent new things, they invent new industries. Like, that's how it all started. Like When we were spending all our time hunting and gathering, and then agriculture came into play, yeah, sure, the hunter had no more role in society. I'm sure his stature went down. But it freed up so much labor that they were able to now invent bronze and brass and iron and all these new things that created all these new technologies that basically got the whole thing rolling. People don't know what the future looks like after something gets automated. They don't know what technologies look like in the future. So they model based on present day. Like when agriculture came out, those guys were modeling like, oh, these hunters are going to be out of work in 100 years. It's like, I'm sure they were crunching that in their Excel spreadsheets. <laughs> yeah. It, it's so ridiculous. It's a non-argument because when things get automated, I mean, pretty much in every single argument I have with people in economics, they never think about the price side of things. It's always how much income people are getting or where the money is going and who's got work and who doesn't and who's the proletariat and who's being taken. No one ever talks about what happens to the prices of goods. The price of goods is what dictates the overall wealth of everyone in general. And when the prices of goods go down, it's not just the rich that get rich, the poor that get rich, the middle get rich. Everybody gets rich when the price of goods go down. So the key in an economy should always be focused on how do we get the prices of goods down. That's what's going to make everyone better off. And tariffs is certainly not the route. Another thing that makes it a little bit tricky for me to wrap my mind fully around is that I tend to think from the Austrian perspective and from a the way I think markets should be functioning in a non-manipulated sense. But given that we have central bank manipulation, not only in the Western world, but across the world, how does that come into play and interplay with economic policies and tariffs and things like that? I think it's a big reason why at least Trump is doing it. He cited many times that the Chinese keep manipulating their currency and stuff, but 
I always kind of get a chuckle out of it because the United States is doing the exact same thing, and so is Europe, and so is pretty much everybody in the world is doing the same thing. So I don't really have the figures, so I can't. I'm not really certain about how much more China is doing it than the U.S., but it seems to me like everybody's just doing it. And um, I guess one way to balance the scales, if somebody is manipulating their currency too much, making their current, like basically destroying their currency, making their goods so much more attractive to purchase. Uh, yeah, I guess the way to counter that would be a tariff. But neither of those two things benefit the consumer. So both are just going to raise the price of goods. You know, you're going to get in a political battle around it, but, like, I don't know. I don't see the benefit. But I, I don't know enough about, like, the direct circular correlation between the two. I know that they're involved in the international geopolitics, but in my opinion, both, both suck. But, yeah. The way that the American economy runs at such a huge deficit all the time, I almost think it would be like the ultimate joke if they had this plan all along that the government was just always going to outspend itself and take advantage of being the reserve currency of the world so that everyone's selling America their goods in exchange for these printed U.S. dollars so that America is getting all these goods that are actually produced, like actual assets, in exchange for these paper IOUs and just keep printing more and more of them. And since it's the reserve currency, that there isn't the same degree of inflation that you would have if it was a non-reserve currency. And then eventually, once the tab gets so big that the national debt is just huge, just be like, oh, yeah, sorry about that. <laughs> and then just like print it into oblivion and make the debt irrelevant. Yeah, I mean... And then and then it's like, oh, well, okay, the currency's done. We'll have to have a new one. But in the meantime, we have all these goods. Yeah, but they're mostly perishable goods, right? I mean, they're not buying things like gold. They're not buying stuff that's going to last. Well, gold is not a, a value-producing asset. It's just a store of value. But it, Yeah, but if your currency collapses, and let's say we're importing things like cars and rice, yeah, you have all that stuff. But go to Cuba to find out what happens, what the next step is. I mean, they're still driving those 1970s cars. I mean, I wouldn't say that they gain from that. Once that currency collapses, you're going to go way back as a result. I don't know how this is all going to end. I mean, this, print, this currency printing thing is just, if I had the answers to that stuff, I wouldn't be, uh, <laughs> I'd be working for some hedge fund or something. Yeah, we don't know how this stuff's going to add. I, I mean, I, I, I get what you mean. Like, you're, you're printing fake money, you're getting goods, and a return is, is great, but that stuff's going to have to get paid back somehow, right? Well, that, I mean, that was kind of the situation that led us to Bretton Woods too. that in the late 60s and early 70s, that, you know, after World War II, other countries were starting to get a little frustrated that they were taking all these American dollars and in exchange, they're giving up their goods. Eventually, I think it was the French president at the time saying like, we're tired of these dollars, like we want our gold back. So they started to repatriate their gold and the U.S. gold reserves started dropping. And then Nixon came in and he realized that it was going at a rate that the U.S. was going to run out of their gold reserves. So that's when he did the executive order to cut off the conversion of dollars to gold because it was basically like what I'm saying is it was triggered by the fact that 
other countries were waking up and saying, hey, like we're giving you our goods in exchange for these dollars, but then what good are these dollars if we can't get gold with them? Yeah, that was a big mistake by Nixon. I mean, think about what would have happened. Like, let's say they gave those dollars back and they got gold in return and the dollars still pegged to gold. Well, what you get now is you have less gold in your reserves, but now your dollars are worth more. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know the, uh, the fix for that. It's capital outflight, I guess. You don't want to be sending your money out and having goods come in because eventually what's supposed to happen is your, your dollar will be worth less. But then the scale tips, right? And then it goes the other way. Then you start sending your goods because your dollar's worth, worth, worth less. So then you become an export economy as a result. And it's a back and forth. It's an equilibrium. So America, when all those dollars are coming out, they're becoming a big export country, right? Big manufacturer. It was like their golden days. They're sending goods out and getting money back in. But by going off the gold sand and saying, no, we're going to be a consumer economy. We're just going to like print money. That's what kills manufacturing jobs. Because now you're, it's not worth buying goods from your country anymore. You become a consumer economy. And that's what's making the country poor. It's a slow bleed. It's just these dollars are worth a lot less when they're not attached to gold. So you're setting them out. And the only reason people are putting value on the U.S. dollar still is because it's pegged to oil. Because you need U.S. dollars to buy oil. Exactly. It's still the reserve currency of the world. So it's almost like the Federal Reserve has a bit of a free pass to do whatever they want. And then everyone else has to follow or be taken for the ride. Yeah, for now. But what happens when all that changes, right? Well, as long as there aren't other economies that are strong, then that would almost never be a problem. But when other economies become strong, that becomes a problem. And that has become the case with China. So eventually, the game that the Federal Reserve is playing is going to end. Yeah. I mean, once people start using the UN as, or something as a reserve currency, that's when U.S. is really going to take a tumble. If I had to bet on the future, this is my prediction. You can mark my words. Yeah, well, it's recorded. On uh, March 12th, 2018, I am betting on the International Monetary Fund issuing a, uh, they'll call it a blockchain-based SDR that is a basket of global currencies that is in the cloud. <laughs> that is my prediction for the future of a one-world currency. That is special drawing rights, basically. It's a almost like a, a basket of currencies. Sounds like a nightmare. <laughs> yeah, but as um, I mean, you're basically there's no competition now between how you exchange goods and services. God forbid, a small group of people have any control over that. I know, I know. Like. You can't exchange any good or service without this small group of overlords making sure they see what you're doing. <laughs> That's not going to end well. No. So last question, bringing it back to the tariffs. Outside of the economic angle of it, what do you think about it being used almost like as a um, bargaining chip in geopolitical positioning and negotiations? It's tough to really understand what's going on in the geopolitical world. I know the big concern is China. I have a theory that uh, I think U.S. and Russia are actually like working together, like they're not enemies. And the common problem between the two is China. So I think a lot of what 
the stuff that's going on is just to try to cause harm to them or slow them down because they are liter- they are taking over right now. And maybe these tariffs are just a way of way of trying to balance the scales. But I don't know. Tough to say. I don't really know. Like, there's a lot. I, I don't think we know about what's going on between um, these countries and what their true motives are. But definitely people are concerned that China is now becoming this monster economy and they're just buying up everything internationally. They own everything now. Like, if you look at geopolitics as like a risk board, in the game of risk, you have nothing to benefit from getting in conflicts with someone who's powerful. You'll end up just dwindling chips or your whatever, right? Any country that's gotten in massive war, whether it be trade war or hot war, even a cold war, countries that engage in those activities end up a lot worse off geopolitically than they were before. Great Britain's the best example after the First World War. And then the Second World War, they were just no longer a global power. Whereas prior to the First World War, they were they had ownership of half the world. And that goes the same with all the European countries and the Great War and the First War. They went from just being able to go to countries around the world and just bully them around to secondary states after those conflicts. But that's, that's kind of the point, though, right? That there's reasons kind of behind the veil that make it more than just about the steel tariffs right now. There's probably a whole lot more behind it than the isolated, myopic topic by itself. Exactly like what you're saying, that there's potentially even 100, 200 years worth of geopolitical implications, not just on this topic, but like every little geopolitical move. If you think of, let's say, like a couple that's been married for decades, and then the wife just snaps the husband was it really just because of that one like cookie that he ate? Or was it because of 50 other things over the course of the yeah. last two years that he was doing that then she snapped kind of thing <laughs> or whatever? You know what I mean? Well, yeah, yeah. People, yeah, people forget all the time history. It gets forgotten. It's like, well, when 9-11 happened, they were like, oh, they're attacking us because they hate us because we're free. And it's like, we're just going to forget at the end of major world conflict, we started drawing lines in the sand and dividing territories and then setting up military bases over there and then bombing cities and mingling and replacing dictatorships. And, you know, there's like all this stuff that happens throughout history, but the news has a memory of two weeks ago. And it's <laughs> this stuff's been brewing for a really long time. Yeah, if that. <laughs> yeah, I think that's a big problem when it comes to talking about this stuff. But my summary on terrorists, though, is that, uh, they're just bad. They're bad. They just cause, I think they just cause hurt to the consumer. And I think if China doesn't have a minimum wage and then you tariff them out of a market and you don't lower your minimum wage to where whatever level they were at, then you're never going to be able to provide your consumers with the same prices on goods, which means you're just making their standard of living lower. I think that Trump's got it wrong. I think that is on this, a on this one. solid final point all right man thank you very much for sharing your non-conventional view (laughs) you're welcome we need more uh, austrian economics in the public well it's uh it's a rare thing these days unfortunately it's hard to talk austrian economics without getting branded into some sort of group it's very difficult to actually like express the theories and talk and just have discourse right i just want to have discourse without getting into identity politics and i think that's really 
difficult to do these days. Yeah, I don't know why that is. But that's another topic for another day. <laughs> All right, man. Catch us next time on another episode of the Postmoney Plan podcast.